ओम तत्सत ओम नम शिवाय ओम जयंती मंगलाकाली भद्रकाली कपालिनी दुर्गा क्षमा शिवादात्रि स्वाह स्वधा नमोस्तुते ओम Shanti 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 hi salutations to that goddess who is the power of all mantras om kreem kalikaye vidmahe smashana vasinye dimahi tanno ghore prachodayat om meshi illumine our minds that dweller in the cremation ground om that's good evening one and all so i wanted to do something special today i don't know why i just feel somewhat inspired to talk a little bit about deities and deity yoga and mantras and specifically i want to ask the question what exactly are deities especially from with you know from within a non dual point of view so in a non dual spiritual tradition where is there really room for deities as such so i'll ask the question from a non dual point of view what is a deity actually a deva or a devi then i want to ask what is a mantra and then more importantly what's the sambandha what's the relationship between the deity and the mantra what does the mantra do for the deity what does the deity do for the mantra what's what's the link between deity and mantra and then having understood the link between deity and mantra the next thing ne- necessarily that we have to do is to ask well what does that have to do with us in our own sadhana in our own practice how do we use mantras how do we chant them and why would we even want to chant them like that and then hopefully we'll do a little bit of a practice to integrate the teaching um about mantra so does that sound okay do you do you like do you like the idea of that where that's going okay good hello dear fletch nice to now we can finally see fletch he's in australia australia since australia there he is there's fletch good so beautiful whoa look at that it's in a tree first... today oh it's awesome good this is a good place to learn about mantras hello dear cinema namaskar namaskar yeah good good to good to meet you fletch and welcome chris good to have you look chris chris is like on it on another level right now look at chris chris is like is that in real time brother are you like actually moving that guy or is that guy just like moving is he does he just move on his own i don't know <laughs> that's far out i'm moving Oh wait, oh my god, wait 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 wait. Before we have this discussion about mantras and gods and goddesses, you have to see what I just saw. Okay, speak again, Chris. I'm moving. Oh my god, that's so wild. <laughs> His mouth moved and everything got digitized. That's so crazy, bro. <laughs> I'm so excited about that. I don't know why. Right, well, welcome Chris. Welcome. Also, there's a Sarai. Sarai I hope I'm saying that all right but welcome good to see you. Hi, Mish. so excited. This is my first time here. Oh, welcome, welcome. Good to meet you. How do I pronounce your name? Sorry. Um it's Sarai. Sarai. Pleasure to meet yeah. you. Yeah. Perfect. But how are you like? Nice <laughs> to meet you. Nice to meet you. Welcome, welcome. Welcome Haley, welcome Adi. V and J, Debbie. Okay, good. Sometimes I just get so excited. I see Shane and Crystal and then here's Sydney. There's Sydney. I just get so excited to see everyone that I like derail the lecture and just go to each camera and just be like, "Oh, there you are. Oh my god, here Crystal. Oh my god, wait, there's a I for a moment we had a we had a Crystal cameo. That was great. Thank you, Crystal." <laughs> okay, okay. Let me start. Let me start. I've been <laughs> All right. So, welcome everyone. Let's talk mantras. 
So the first thing that we'll do, and we'll talk about mantras, of course, and because it's our Hatha Yoga Friday evening practice, when we finish this discussion, we'll go into some postural practices um, in a little bit. So let's just talk a little bit about mantras, what they are, how they relate to deities, and how we might practice with both mantras and deities. Okay. So the first thing to note is that the non-dual view is a consciousness-only view. In other words, According to non-dual schools of philosophy, and of course, there are many different flavors of non-duality, but fundamental to non-duality is that only one thing is, and that one thing perhaps appears as a world or manifests a world, but importantly, the world that you see around you is not different from that one consciousness. It's either an appearance in it or an actual modification of it or a kind of reflection or manifestation of it, according to different schools of non-duality. You know, you have Ramanuja's qualified non-duality. You have Shankara's Kevala Advaita. You have the very radical Ajatavada of Gaurapada, where he denies the existence of a world at all. And of course, you have the Kashmir Shaiva view or the Kaula Tantra, Kaula Trika Tantra view of the world as an actual manifestation of God, which seems to be Sri Ramakrishna's views most of the time. So anyway, there's so many different types of non-duality, but at bottom, non-duality is a consciousness-only model. So where do gods and goddesses fit in? You know, gods like Shiva, who is typically depicted as a meditator sitting on a tiger skin mat high up in the mountains of the Himalayas, you know, deep absorbed in Samadhi. Ganesh, the elephant-headed god wielding axe and holding a sweet. And where does he fit into all of this? Makali, the dweller amidst the fires of the cremation ground, dancing ecstatically atop her prostrate husband, you know? Where does she fit into all of this? So what are these images that you find in the um, Hindu mythology, like Ganesh and Shiva and Madurga, the lion-riding goddess, and Makali, and of course, you know, um, Vishnu and his various avatars, Rama, Krishna, etc. Where do they all fit in into a non-dual consciousness-only model? That's what I want to talk about first. But let's introduce the consciousness-only model first. And then from there, we'll start exploring what deities are. This is my central claim today. Deities are not so much beings out there somewhere, but rather they are energetic potencies within consciousness itself. So deities are more about capacities, potentialities, and powers than they are about beings that exist far away. That's my first claim. It's more the case that consciousness is infinitely varied with a series of different inflections or modulations that can be tangibly experienced by anyone who knows how to invoke them or call them to the forefront of experience like that. So that's my first claim. Also, Roxanne, you're okay. You know, I said I wouldn't get excited anymore by all the people coming into the room, but I'm just so happy to see Roxanne. I haven't seen her in so long. So welcome, dear Roxanne. Good to have you. We're talking mantra. We're talking deities. We're talking meditation. Okay. So think of like a light, all right? Like um, say white light. Now, as we know, in white light, there are various other colors, like the whole spectrum of colors exists within white light. So though it might seem like white light, there's a red inflection, there's a blue inflection, there's a yellow inflection, a green inflection. Now, these aren't different from white light. They're just different variations and modulations of that same white light. Similarly, there is only consciousness, but the prakasha, the brilliance of self-effulgent consciousness is in some sense internally variegated, at least in terms of our experience as sadhakas. And those various colors, like the inflection red or the inflection blue, might correspond to these powers and potencies that are experienced as deities. 
which are often experienced in the form of mantras. So that's the first claim I want to make. Deities aren't beings out there so much as they are powers and potencies and inflections within the one consciousness, the one consciousness that you yourself are, that you yourself feel to yourself to be right now, which means all the different deities, Ganesh, Makali, Shiva, they're all in you here and now and can be called forth through the correct techniques, the correct mantra, if you will. So a mantra then is a calling card in some sense to awaken within you a certain pattern of consciousness, a certain theme or mode of consciousness that can have the name Ganesh or Shiva or Kali, right? Isn't that so cool? So it's not that Shiva, Ganesh or Kali are not consciousness. They are, they're all consciousness. Each of them is that same one white light, but inflected and modulated differently. It feels differently. It's a different flavor of one consciousness. Okay. Baskin Robbins, 31 flavors. You know, it's still ice cream, but okay. Now, now the next um, metaphor is take, for instance, sound. We talked about light and light being internally variegated or inflected. Now think about sound. Say there's um, a great cosmic symphony. Um, No, no. Say there's one sound, just one note. Now that note is going to have overtones. So if you play one note on a piano or if you play one note on a guitar, there will be overtones, meaning there'll be like other notes that are somewhat implied by that one note. They're all contained within that one note though. Or think about a big cosmic symphony. Within that symphony, within that like overarching sound tapestry, there are certain motifs or themes. Let's call them maybe recurring motifs or repeating themes. So, you know, for music to be music, you need to have some kind of repetition. That's what makes a groove, by the way. So you're listening to a song and it's just like, dum, ba-da-dum, dum, ba-da-dum, dum, 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 ba-da-dum, dum, ba-da-dum, dum, dum, dum. You know, even if it varies slightly, you got to come back to that. Once I met Bootsy Collins, very tall and like so much Shakti. And um, I was in a band at the time. So I was very curious about like his recording style. And I said, Can you, just give me some advice, Bootsy, in the studio. What, what do I need to know? He said, you can't serve two masters. Don't do drugs. That's one thing. And the second thing he said was, um, always return to the one. And he meant in music, you have to know to return to the one. I thought that was such a profound spiritual teaching as these funk musicians tend to, you know, just... And what he said also, he said, funk is when the brother shows up, funk is when a stranger shows up to your door and asks for a sandwich and the brother gets a sandwich. That's what Bootsy Collins said. (laughs) Anyway, always return to the one. Of course, he meant like playing bass, but perhaps he meant something far more profound. Now that one, that beginning, it, 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 it sets up a kind of loop or a kind of pattern. Yeah, right. <laughs> it sets up a kind of loop or a kind of pattern. I have a cool photo from that encounter. I'll show you. But there's like, there's like this cool loop or this cool pattern that repeats. And sometimes there are different patterns that repeat. repeat. That's what makes music so wonderful. Um, there's groove, but there's not always one groove. There are many grooves sometimes within a very complex piece of music. So classical music, sometimes it might not feel like there's a groove, but in there for the aficionado, there are many repeating motifs and themes that, that get revisited as the music goes on. So take, for instance, one cosmic symphony. It's all, it's happening all at once. This grand tapestry of sound embedded into that one overarching sound are various grooves and rhythms and repeating melodies. Each of them is like a deity. How about that? So I thought I would give you two metaphors, one from light and one from sound, because deities are in truth, both light and sound being after all inflections within consciousness. Now let's go deeper, going beyond the metaphors, the clearly here, let's make no mistake, metaphors of light and sound. Let's now enter into what um, metaphors, uh, what these metaphors are referring to. 
<laughs> anyway, so here are the metaphors and, and here are what they point to, okay? Consciousness itself. So this is where the, the, the lecture, I mean, the, the, this little spiel, not quite a lecture, but this little spiel gets really interesting because we're about to talk about mantras and what they mean for us in the context of meditation and ritual worship. So what is consciousness, actually? Let's start there. Let's first all together now feel into the quality of consciousness. It's very important that you sense the immediacy of consciousness here and now for this teaching to make any sense at all. After all, it's very easy to make consciousness some kind of abstract, exotic concept that you maybe only experience in samadhi or you only experience post-enlightenment. But no, it's, it's, it's something that is more than known, as Swami Vivekananda said. It's so immediate, so present, so direct. And for this teaching to really land, for it to really feel important, it's good to refresh that sense of immediacy in consciousness. So let's start. Maybe you can come into a kind of meditation. We're going to do a slight meditation of sorts. We're just going to point something out. And it's nice to come into this with um, a calm, receptive, spacious sort of approach. So let's start by taking our seat. Maybe we sit up tall or maybe we just relax or however you'd like to sit. It's not important how you're sitting. But it's important that you relax into the moment. So allow the shoulders to melt down from the ears as you soften the base of the neck. Just notice the way the in-breath feels as it enters into your nose, brushing the tip of the nose. Notice the way the exhale feels as it glides out of the nasal passageway. You might feel like closing your eyes just to savor the sweetness of simply being here. Once you've taken a few deep breaths, once you've started to feel like you're arriving or centering or relaxing into the moment, notice a few things. As you open your eyes and look around, notice that you have this like intuitive sense that the world is out there and that you're over here, and somehow the world is presenting itself to you. A very tapestry of sound and textures and sights and smells and what have you. And as you look around the world, notice that there is this clear distinction between you and it. It appears to you as the object, and you experience it as the subject. The subject is the witness, the consciousness, and the object is that which is witnessed and that which you are conscious of. Okay. Now notice that you are conscious not only of the world around you, but also of a world within you. You're aware also of this body. This body interfaces with the world, but it also presents a series of sensations that are internal to it. Like, for instance, taste on your tongue or the gurgling of stomach fluids in your belly the churning of the belly, can you feel that? Or the thudding of the heart or the crackle of saliva in the mouth or the creaking of bones and joints. Maybe you can feel um, spaciousness in the body. Something might feel good and pleasurable as you're sitting here. Maybe you might feel a soreness or a tension in the body. In any case, the body with its myriads of sensations, right? All of that appears to you as an object, just as the world appeared to you as an object. The body is essentially a smell, a taste, a texture, like that. Okay. Now notice, you, the witness, are not that which you are witnessing. So just as you were not the world, so too are you not the body. 
the body appears to you as an object of consciousness, just as the world appears to you as an object of consciousness. Now, if we go a little deeper, we'll see that we are not even the mind. Our notions of who we think we are, our thoughts, our memories, our projections, all of those are also, just like the body and the world, um, objects. They come and they go like a kaleidoscope of dream images wafting before the witness consciousness. So as you go deeper and deeper into your experience of this moment, it becomes glaringly obvious that you are ever the witness, never that which is witnessed. You are not the world, for that is an object. You are not the body, for that too is an object. And you are not even the mind, for that too is an object. Ultimately, what you are cannot be spoken of directly. For what you are defies labels, names. It cannot be pointed to, for it is the one pointing. It cannot be seen, for it is the one seeing. You can never find it, for it is the one searching. It's the presence that you feel yourself to be behind your eyes, behind your mind, in between breaths, in between thoughts, etc. Okay. So that's a thrilling recognition that I am this awareness. The same awareness that is here now will be there in dream. Uninterruptedly, I will transition from a waking experience to a dreaming experience. Uninterruptedly, I will transition perhaps from a dreaming experience to a deep sleep experience. And consciousness remains unbroken and uninterrupted throughout. You'll be just as aware of deep sleep as you are of this waking world like that. Now, if you are sleepy, consciousness is aware of a sleepy mind. If you are alert, Consciousness is aware of an alert mind. A change in mind is not a change in consciousness. So notice how consciousness is unchanging. It equally shines upon all mental states, all physical states, and all states in the world out there. Quote, unquote, out there. Okay. So that's the first teaching. Consciousness is ultimately what you are. It's the witness, Sakshi, that you feel yourself to be intimately here and now. Doesn't require any special meditation technique. It only requires your noticing. Well, that's it. It doesn't, you don't need to make it true. You don't need to effortfully pretend to be something. You just have to relax into what you already are. Okay, good. Now the next step. Thus far, we haven't yet said anything about non-duality. This is clearly duality. I am awareness and therefore I am not that which I am aware of, the world. So here I am, Purusha. There is the world, Prakriti. So this is a dualistic claim. Now we can make it a properly non-dualistic claim. While you consciousness are different from that which you are conscious of, that which you are conscious of is inseparable from you consciousness. For instance, if you weren't here to perceive a world, who's to say there would be a world at all? You could never verify the existence of such a world if you were not here to perceive it. In other words, if you had no eyes, no ears, no nose, no tongue, and no skin, what could you know of a world? Could you say such a world even exists? It would be meaningless to posit such a world, for such a world doesn't get, get experienced at all, at least from your point of view. Now, go a little deeper. Even if you had eyes and ears and nose and tongue, it didn't matter how many senses you had, even if you had all of them, but you had no mind, would it matter? Would there be a person to cognize the various sights that the eyes are picking up, the various sounds that the ears are hearing? No, you'll need a mind for the senses to work. Now, say you did have such a mind. Say you were equipped with all of the senses, fully functioning. Say there was a world, but there was no awareness. Would you experience anything? 
You know, it's a thought experiment. Obviously, you've never felt what it is to be not awareness. You've always been awareness prior to death, after death. Don't conflate awareness with memory. You know, just because you don't remember something doesn't mean you weren't aware of it. You're aware of not remembering it after all. Don't conflate awareness with knowledge. Just because you don't know something doesn't mean you're not aware of it. You're aware of not knowing it after all, like that. So awareness, though it's unbroken and continuous, just as a thought experiment, imagine what it would be like to have a mind, to have senses, and for there to be a world, but for there not to be any awareness whatsoever. Again, there would be no world, you see. So without awareness, there could be no mind. Without mind, there could be no senses. And without senses, there could be no world. The world depends on the senses for its existence. The senses depend on the mind for its existence. And the mind depends on awareness for its existence. So in this sense, awareness is the ground of all things. And from awareness arises the experience of worlds, both waking and dreaming. Okay, isn't that really cool to notice that this world um, is not separate from you? It appears within you. Let's try another experiment right now. Notice a sound that is seemingly coming from far away. Maybe it's coming from your computer, like the sound of my voice might be carrying across the room from your phone or from your computer. Now, you might think at first that the sound is out there. But if you carefully consider the phenomenon, you'll notice that you're hearing the sound from in here. The sound is always cognized, internal to your field of witnessing. It's always an experience within you, awareness. You've never actually experienced anything outside of awareness. So we're left with this startling conclusion, and this is non-duality proper. There is only consciousness. You are that consciousness, and the entire world is an appearance or reflection within that consciousness. Nothing exists beyond consciousness. And if something existed beyond consciousness, it would be preposterous to claim it, for no one can, even in principle, experience it. Okay, so that in a nutshell is non-duality. So where then do all these like gods and goddesses fit? See, the whole world is in consciousness, right? The entire thing that you experience around you is internal to you. So that must mean that gods and goddesses, at the very least we can say this, are internal to you. If the world is internal to you, if the entire universe is internal to you, universe here meaning both physical and subtle, like various lokas, if all of that is within you consciousness, then the gods and goddesses of every pantheon, they too are within you. And interestingly, the world exists within you as consciousness, right? So gods and goddesses too must exist within you as consciousness. Everything is consciousness appearing to itself in a variety of different ways. So here Shankara loves the example of the clay and the pots. Why? Because he gets it from the Chandogya Upanishad, which is very big on examples. There you'll get the example of the ocean and waves, the example of gold and its ornaments, and of course, clay and its pots. So there in the Chandogya Upanishad, and also famously in Shankara, we learn to see the world as various pots, understanding that beyond the form, there is a common substratum called consciousness. Just as clay pots are made of clay, so too is this entire world made of consciousness. So the very substance of each god and goddess is consciousness. Who is consciousness? The consciousness that you are. Okay, so now we can talk about Jungian archetypes a little bit. So it seems like gods and goddesses are like archetypes. They're like um, fundamental forces within consciousness, primary colors, if you will. That's why young children, I've noticed, have such a fascination for gods and goddesses of every pantheon. It's not just that they enjoy, um, you know, Greek, you know, because they'll read Percy Jackson and they'll get really excited, but they also enjoy Egyptian pantheons. They love um, the Hindu pantheon. Why? Probably because you're sensing, I don't, I'm just projecting here, um, speaking on behalf of all children, I don't know why I have the right to do that. <laughs> Being a middle school teacher does 
does not give you the right to speak on behalf of all children. But if I were to, I would say it's speaking from my perspective and I identify as an eight-year-old, it's probably because there's something quite fundamental about those deities that remind you something about yourself. You really see yourself in deities. Just like, you know, the tarot uh, presents a series of archetypes that you can identify with. You know, some people identify with the emperor, others with the high priestess, some with the fool, mostly with the fool for me. (laughs) But you can identify with different archetypes and they feel so intimate and so familiar, you know? That's the thing about the tarot. I mean, the Rider Waite tarot. There's something about Pamela Coleman Smith's paintings that is eerily reminiscent of of what you can't quite put your finger on. There's something quite nostalgic about it. It's like there's that German word, Fernway. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it correctly. Uh, maybe there's some German speakers in the room that can correct me, but Fernway, you know, it's a great Google. I'll put it in the chat. It means nostalgia for some place that you've never been to or nostalgia for something that you don't really know. You know, I mean, for there to be nostalgia, it has to be reminiscent of something. But this is the feeling of nostalgia for what you don't quite know. You can't. So looking at the Pamela Coleman Smith deck, you get that kind of fern way, that feeling of familiarity, right? Similarly, the gods and goddesses from a Jungian, like archetypical point of view, just from a materialist psychological point of view, they seem to be integral aspects of you. Maybe you could say in the collective consciousness, because not, not just of you as an individual, but of everyone. By the way, we've thus far established that everyone is also in you. So it, let me just continue by saying in you. So in you, and even if we want to be mundane and public about it, in everyone, there is this recognition of these archetypes. So Jung might say they are fundamental to collective unconscious or something, if you will. Now, in Tantra and way before that, in Vedic India, we go further. We say that it's not just the case that these beings are part of the collective unconscious, psychologically speaking. Rather, um, they are embedded into the very fabric of reality itself. These deities, much like inflections within white light, much like overtones in a sound, these deities are flavors or patterns or motifs that are integral to consciousness. They're eternal and they're eternally present within the one eternal consciousness that you are. Of course, eternal is not a very accurate phrase here since consciousness is beyond time. So in what sense is it eternal? Who can say? Eternal in the sense that as long as there is consciousness, there will be internal to it these inflections. So notice what I'm saying here. I'm saying that deities are not projected by a psychological mind looking to identify with some archetypes. Deities are not um, specific to the unconscious that exists only within an individual's mind. I'm saying deities, as far as the world is concerned, exist as part of the fabric and structure of reality. They're as integral as light and sound and gravity. And any of the laws of physics are perhaps derived from these deities, if you will. So Ganesh is an actual pattern within consciousness that can be experienced in the world at large. Okay, now we come to the next part of this discussion. So why does he look like a little elephant man? Is he actually like that? Yes and no. So I want to introduce to you now what a deity really is on four levels of abstraction. Already I said deities are pure consciousness, right? But they can be approached and interacted with in four levels, in four ways, I I would say. So a rishi, a great seer, who by the way, the Vedic term for seer is kavi, meaning poet. I think that's beautiful that these great seers were seen as poets, you know, because they they heard the music of God, if you will. So one thing you should note about the Vedas, at least, you know, from the point of view of Vedic India and its internal mythic structure, the Vedas are not given, they're not revealed by gods. 
Isn't that, you know, many spiritual texts, religious texts in many communities are often given by some deity, some being, right? So the being speaks the text into existence or reveals the text unto someone. Of course, you have instances of like, like, that kind of transmission. Take the case of Vasugupta and his reception of the Shiva Sutra through dream transmission. Certainly that's there. But the Vedas, they weren't created by God. They weren't spoken by God. They exist as part of the fabric of creation. As long as there's creation, the Vedas are there. So Swami Vekananda says, by Vedas, no books are meant. They're not books. The Vedas are like these vibrations of universal spiritual principles that just exist, if you will, in the ether. The ether is a bit of a dated term right now, but it's just in the air. Love is in the air. No, Vedas are in the air. And they're full of mantras, right? So Vedas, basically what the Veda is, it's just a body of mantras. The Vedas is like a sonic body of mantras. Now, remember how we said in the Bible that in the beginning, there was the word, the gospel of John, and the word was with God. Nay, the word was God. That logos of the Greeks, the word. In Tantra, we call it paravak supreme word and the understanding here which you know has its echoing uh, sentiment in quantum mechanics is that the universe is just one big vibration one word of god so to go back to our sound and music metaphor within that one word of god there's this fundamental vibration called the vedas and you can even argue that everything arises from that fundamental fundamental vibration and it's a mantric sort of force so the world is mantra That's essentially what I'm saying here. The entire world that you see around you is mantra. When you look at a table, you're looking at, in some sense, a mantric expression of the universe because the table is vibrating like a sound would vibrate within a cosmic symphony. That's pretty far out, right? This is, look, Adi has this little campfire thing going on. So this this is one of those conversations I think that you have. Wait, let let me show you Adi's situation here. Oh no, I can't quite. I can't spotlight his thing. It's weird. But if you can see Adi's screen, it's like a bunch of people sitting around a fire, great saints and sages. So this is one of those like past the blunt conversations. <laughs> the world is vibration, man. I know it's pretty out there, but that's the way that the Vedic um, civilization saw it. And that's the way that Tantra continues to see it. So today a Tantric practitioner sees this world as fundamentally a vibration, um, an oscillation, a pulsation. The word for it is spanda. What is it a vibration of? It's a vibration of consciousness. It's just consciousness vibrating as this or as that. Now, within the vibration of consciousness, there are certain foundational or fundamental vibrations. As I said earlier, these are devas and devis, gods and goddesses. So a rishi or a kavi, a seer, seated in deep meditation, goes closer and closer to the source of all things. As the external vibrations die down, the world vanishes before their very eyes. And when they're sitting in meditation, they lose the sense of their body and they go a little deeper. They lose the sense of their mind. So beyond body and mind, they enter into a transmental reality, the vibration that is pure consciousness. And on the very threshold of mind and consciousness, they hear or receive or uncover or rather discover, maybe unearth, to use another phrase, these bij mantras. Bij mantras like hung or hring or aing, or kring, or kling, or shring, or shraung, or hut, like that. So these are all bij mantras that don't really mean anything in the Sanskrit language. There's no corresponding linguistic concept for these bij mantras. They're just sounds. And no, they're not even sounds. They're patterns within consciousness. They're vibrations that are even subtler than anything that can be spoken. But it's the nature of sound not only to vibrate mentally, but also have its external, what is called vaikari, or spoken correlate. And so when I say shreem, 
I'm speaking out what is actually a mental vibration, which is in truth, in its essence nature, a pattern within consciousness. So think of all of these bij mantras, okay? These bij mantras are energies. They're, as, as Harish Ji says so beautifully, energy signatures, or in the word, um, in Sanskrit word bhava, they're flavors. Okay, so thus far, in a somewhat circumlocutious roundabout way, I hope I've said what I really mean to say, which is that a deity is a bhava or a certain flavor of consciousness. And that flavor is on one level captured by the mantra. So this is very important. The mantra, note this very carefully. This is the most important point for your practice, for your sadhana, for your puja. Now, mantra is not a name signifying a named. So nama and nami. Nama, name. Nami, the named. So mantra is not like that. It's not like the bij mantra calls out to something, points to something. You know how the Buddha would famously say, the finger pointing to the moon is not the moon? It's not like that. The mantra shrim is not like a finger pointing to the moon. It is the moon. This is the most important thing you can learn in Tantra. Nama, Nami, Abheg. I'll put that in the chat. Nama, Nami, Abheg. I'm just riffing off of uh, Sri Ramakrishna line, Brahma or Shakti Abed. There's no difference between Brahman and his Shakti. There's no difference between consciousness and its pulsation or vibration, or rather its dynamic aspect. Similarly, there's no difference whatsoever between the mantra Shriing and Lakshmi, the deity to whom it is ascribed, because that mantra, that vibration is the deity, you see. And each deity in that sense is a mantra. So when you ask the question, what's the relationship between mantra and deity? There is no relationship in the sense that it's one connecting to another. It's the same. The word mantra in tantra means deity. And the word deity in tantra means mantra. Isn't that mind-blowing? So every deity is a mantra. Now, when those mantras arise, sometimes they're just beach mantras. Or sometimes the beach mantra flowers forth into a longer mantra. So there's one mantra, by the way, that captures all of it. Does anybody know? The main, yeah, Jess has got it. Om. So there's one mantra that just, so the whole universe is Om. Sarvam Omkara Eva. As you, as you learn in the Mandukya Upanishad, you know, the Mandukya Upanishad opens with that sentiment that Om is literally everything that was, is, and will be. Everything is Om. Sarvam omkara eva, like everything is nothing but the om vibrates. The om is Brahman. It's not like the om refers to Brahman. Remember, nama nami abed. So om is the vibration of pure consciousness. It can be spoken, but better yet, it's always vibrating. It's always like ajapa. It's always vibrating within you. It's called the pranava shabda, the primordial sound or the primeval vibration. Um, Ah, Jess, yeah, Wilson taught, taught Jess the Om. Because Wilson is a, a scholar of the Upanishads and very fond of the Mandukya, which is a very, very beautiful Upanishad. Okay, so now we know Om, right? Om is the master sound. Remember how we said there's consciousness and then within consciousness is embedded certain like fundamental motifs or vibrations. So therefore, in Om, there are bij mantras. So from Om, you might get like Gang. Gang is a bij mantra that rises from Om. What does Gang correspond to? Ganesh or Ganapati. So you might get from Om, Gang, and you might get from Gang, Ganapataye, Namaha. So that mantra altogether is Om, Gang, Ganapataye, Namaha, or Om, Gang, Ganeshaya, Namaha, which means, Namaha, I salute that one who is the Isha of the Ganas, Ganesha, the Lord of the Ganas, whose vibration, whose energy signature, whose bhava is Gang. And that Gang is embedded in no less than pure oceanic awareness, Om. 
Do you see? So that's the breakdown of the mantra. So then where does Ganapati come from? Where does Ganesh come from? We, we, we've thus far spoken of Om and we've thus far spoken of Gang, right? So we know about Bij mantras. But what about the deity itself? Like Shreem, what about Lakshmi? Gang, what about Ganesh? Or Hreem, what about Shiva? Like, or, you know, like, oh, ring, what about Durga? Like, where do these deities come from? Okay, let's go deeper. In the Vedas, you get a reference to um, various deities, but not how they look. So Ganesh is not described in the Vedas as an elephant-headed fella. You know, he's not. He's called out, though, by his name, Ganapati. And we know because in the beginning of the Sri Rudram, a very famous hymn, a lot of Indians are chanted daily. Um a lot of, not to say Indians, but a lot of Hindus all over the world chanted daily. The beginning of that Sri Rudra, which is very old, it's from the Yajur Veda, the Krishna Yajur Veda, I believe. It's very old Veda. It begins with, Om Gananantva Ganapatim Gang Havamahe Kavin Kavinamupama Shravastamam Jeshta Rajam. Like that. So what is that? It's a Yajur Veda Vedic hymn to Ganesh. But here Ganesh is seen as an energy pattern, not as like a jolly rotund fellow with... Paskin. No, so where did that come from? Now, in the Vedas, it seems like deities were more energies than they were anthropomorphic forms. We get actually very little reference to anthropomorphic forms in the Vedas. Instead, they seem to be interacting with deities in their mantric, pure, energetic form. So Ganesh, for most of his existence, I think in Indian civilization, was not an elephant-faced fella. He was just the energy that clears obstacles. He was the lord of obstacles, typically invoked at the beginning of a puja. Um, at that time, it was called a homa or a yagya. He was invoked in the beginning of that rite as a way to clear obstacles in that rite. But he wasn't seen or visualized in any which way, really. It was enough to just connect with him on a mantric level. So I just I hope you understand now that deities can just be felt on a mantric level. So how this works is, as you chant the deity's mantra, taking care to pronounce the syllables correctly, you call that deity into the forefront of your experience. So you'll get a qualitative shift in awareness. So if you chant that Ganapati mantra properly, you'll feel like this groundedness, a centeredness, a sense of like, order and structure as if everything, every power is placed in its proper station, as if there's somehow a protective element entering into the room like that. You'll feel tangibly Ganesh coming, but it's not that you need to see him or have a visual of like an elephant headed guy. It's enough to just see how consciousness modulates and shifts according to that mantra. So this is how you work with mantras. You chant them diligently, sometimes over and over and over again, until you feel that qualitative shift within consciousness called a bhava. So the Ganesha bhava or the Ganapati bhava is accessed through the diligent and careful chanting, perhaps repetitively, of the Ganesh Vedic mantra, the Yajur mantra, or perhaps the Ganesh Gayatri mantra, Om. Um, Eka Dantaya Vidmahe Vakratundaya Dimahi Tanno Danti Prachodayat Whatever There's all these different kinds of mantras And by properly chanting them By properly uh, uh, repeating them You get that flavor of consciousness Okay Now If you go deep enough You might actually have a visual experience Of that deity Not as like an elephant-headed fellow But as sacred geometry So now we're going to go from consciousness To bij mantra But now we're going to go from bij mantra to yantra So yan means control Tra means device Hello ma, welcome, welcome So what is a yantra? It's a device for controlling Controlling what? You might ask Energy Tra means to control, sorry, tra means device, yan means to control. So yantra is a device for controlling energy. So you'll notice that all the deities in tantra can be seen in their anthropomorphic forms or they can be seen in their 
sacred geometry. Like Makali, you'll see her sacred geometry up there, downward pointing triangle. Or like Sri Lakshmi, Mahalakshmi will have the Sri Chakra from the Sri Vidya tradition. Or there's the Shiva, downward and upward pointing triangle. Um, there's the Ganesh Yantra, which is an upward pointing triangle. So you'll notice all deities can be seen beyond their anthropomorphic forms as like sacred geometry, as energy patterns. And you know what? The Yantra is closer to what that deity is really like. The yantra is a deeper experience of the deity. And even deeper than the yantra is the mantra. And even deeper than the mantra is the consciousness in which that mantra is embedded as a fundamental building block of reality. <sighs> Thank you, Rory. But yes, this is perhaps the most important thing I could say from within a tantric context. What is a deity from the point of view of non-duality? It's this. Consciousness has embedded in it these certain bij mantras. Within Om, there are bij mantras. These are flavors or patterns of consciousness. They're bhavas, uh, modes or modulations of that one consciousness. Musicians in the room, perhaps you might appreciate a metaphor. C major can be modulated through Ionian or Phrygian or Dorian or Locrian or whatever. But each of these are just scales starting on different notes, but they're ultimately the same scale. So by the way, if I started... Um, if I started my C major, C, D, E, F, G, A, B, if I started my C major scale on the fifth degree, right, meaning G, what would I get? I would get mixolydian like that. So mixolydian is just C major on the fifth degree. So for music nerds in the room, it's just like that. It's just like that. A god is a flavor of that one same consciousness, just as each of the modes in music is a different bhava or flavor of one same scale. So the Bij mantra is very abstract, but slightly less abstract is the yantra. And even less abstract is the actual anthropomorphic form. So what is that? Now I'm coming to the very end of my message here. The anthropomorphic form. So when a, when a rishi or a kavi, a seer, meditates and enters into the fundamental substratum of it all, the clay, if you will, they find these bij mantras. And through the bij mantras, they might see the yantras. And through the yantras, they might actually experience the deity in an anthropomorphic form. And as a result, they compose what is typically called dhyana shloka. Dhyana shloka or dhyana mantra means a verse that describes what that deity is like. So for instance, one of the ones you hear often in the pujas here is, Om Megangheem Vigatam Param, Shava Shiva Rudham Trinetram Param. The, the Kali dhyana shloka, it says, she is clothed in nothing but infinite space, meaning she's naked. And, um, her skin is like that color. It's, it's called Shyama. I, it's, there's no English word, but Shyama means like gray blue. It's the color of the sky in the autumn month of India, like right before the storm, the monsoon. It's like kind of gray, Dumavati, like that gray, smoky, black, blue. It's a color that really has no English equivalent. But the word, um, you know, Meganghim Vigatam Baram says what the color of a skin is. It's blue, black either black or gray or smoky or blue, something like that. Then it goes on to say she's three-eyed and she's standing on her Lord Shiva. She's awe-inspiring and terrible and terrifying to behold. Her hair is long and disheveled. Vama dordva karam bhujam. Nara shira kadagam chasavyatare. She holds in her left hand a sword and in her lower left hand, she's holding a severed human head, you know? So interestingly, the Dhyana Shloka is like a sage, like he's having this experience of Makali, not as a mantra, not as a yantra, but as like an actual anthropomorphic being. And he's like, not, not writing. I mean, most of them are just composing orally, but he's, he's composing, he's orally composing this mantra related to this deity. 
And that is typically what ends up getting translated into the paintings. So if you've ever wondered, right, why does Shiva look like that? Or why does Kali look like that? Well, because the sages have experienced her as that. But is she that? Not quite. Yes and no. She is that. But if you look a little closer, she's a yantra. And if you look even closer, she's a bij mantra. And if you look even closer, she's pure consciousness. So Sri Ramakrishna would give the example of being far away from, let's say, uh, an ocean. And the ocean appears black from a distance. But once you get close, you realize the water is just formless color. It's just, uh, sorry, it's, it's, it's colorless. colorless. Similarly, pure awareness. It's colorless. It's formless. But from a distance or from just one step. Like, so, okay, have I... Have I properly. I, I think I've hammered the point home enough times. So what is a deity? At first, she is consciousness. In a slightly less abstract form, she is a bij mantra. In an even less abstract form, she is a yantra. And finally, she is an anthropomorphic form. But above all, whether you're working with the deity as an anthropomorphic image or as a geometric design or as a vibration within consciousness, it doesn't change the fact that deities are not beings as much as their powers and potencies embodied and personified. They can be spoken to. They can be interacted with. Certainly, they come and teach as beings would teach us. They appear to people. And like, you know, we were saying last night, Manjushri appeared to Shantideva and transmitted the Bodhicharya Vatara to him. And he then transmitted that to his disciples. So similarly, Sri Ramakrishna would see Makali and Makali would tell him things. And he would later, you know, he would have conversations. So it's not to say that they're not people. They are. But they're more than that. They're more than just beings out there. So we come down to it then. Why does Shiva look the way that he does? Because his bhava is the experience of being absorbed in pure, formless, non-dual consciousness. So when you meditate on Lord Shiva, you enter that kind of shantam bhava, that peaceful, tranquil, sort of absorbed, and his eyes, eye, eyelids are like fluttering in ecstasy, and he's so transcendent. He's so far away from the world. He's in Mount Kailash, you know? So Shiva is the experience of pure transcendence. And by meditating on Shiva, either as an anthropomorphic form or as a yantra, or by chanting the mantra, Om Namah Shivaya, Om Namah Shivaya, Om Namah Shivaya, or even better, just by saying Shiva, 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 like that, you enter into the flavor, the bhava of consciousness called Shiva. Now, Kali, her experience is one of tremendous power, all the power in the universe. So it's quite intimidating and awe-inspiring. So by looking at her image or by looking at her yantra or by chanting om or whatever whatever mantra um you can get that sense of like kali the bhava the flavor so you'll know in your puja practice or in your japa practice you'll know that you've achieved some kind of success when you feel as if consciousness has shifted qualitatively to match the flavor or the bhava of your mantra how about that okay so let's practice a little bit now in our remaining time um let me choose maybe we can do Ganesh is a good one. Ganesh is a nice, safe mantra to practice. He can, he can be a little fierce because he's Ganapati, you know, the father of the Ganas. You know, by the way, Ganesh is a lord of obstacles. He doesn't just remove them. He also places them there. You know, it's interesting. It's like, it's your intrinsic ability to like self-sabotage, you know, and the ability to like not self-sabotage when it's appropriate. But sometimes it is appropriate to self-sabotage. That's how you learn. So remember, gods, they're not beings out there that come and like do things to you. They're beings in here within your very being. So to call them, to chant their mantras is to call them forth from within you. They're already there. So you know how some people are afraid of Makali? No, no, she's already within you. It's just a matter of whether or not you call her forth. Okay, or not like that. So 
Any questions, by the way, before we do our practice? Does anybody have um, insights, questions, comments, concerns? Anything that wasn't clear in the lecture? No? Sarai is okay. Megan is okay. Haley is like in Shavasana already. Um, <laughs> Haley has melted into the Om. I wonder what the Haley Beach Mantra is. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah. Absolutely. Um, typically, we do like from five to six, we do our Hatha Yoga. We flow through a few shapes, right? And then from six to seven, we do our Bhakti Sutra class. So there's going to be more lecture in just a little bit. But today, I just couldn't. I just couldn't do any Hatha Yoga because of just the force of that <laughs> inspiration and transmission. So let's do a few poses, though. I'm going to end this recording. I'd like to flow through a few poses. Thank you. I'm, I'm, I'm happy you enjoyed it because there was no way I could do anything but that today. And so how it is for you is I, I'll never know. But I hope it was as good for you as it was for me. <laughs> we had a long puja today. And so I was just really enjoying all the levels that a deity can be experienced anthropomorphically as a yantra, as a mantra, and of course, as pure consciousness, right? So I'm going to put Sydney on the screen and she's going to demonstrate, of course, a few poses for you, if that's okay, Sydney. And we'll flow through them in a very brief sequence. I, I don't recommend Fletch do any of these since he's literally in a tree right now. You remind me of Nag Mahashai. Look, let me show you Fletch. Look at him. The fella is literally in a tree. Look at him. He's so awesome. What a, what a great place to be taking this class. Uh, he reminds me of Nag Mahashai, who apparently lived in a tree or, or um, that incarnation of Ganesh. Um, Nityananda, you know, Baba Muktanandaji's guru, the Maharashtra um, Saint Nityananda, Baba Nityananda. He also lived in a tree for a long time. Like for years and years and years, he just lived in a tree. And uh, I'm sure you can do Hatha Yoga in there. You know, Prikshasana, if you will. But, <laughs> so um, if you do feel like moving today and doing a few asana, some postural practice, I'm going to put Sydney on the screen. I'm going to guide you through a very brief and simple postural practice. And then we're going to sit and meditate before our next lecture, okay? But if you don't feel like doing any postural practice, then um, you can just hang around, you can meditate, and you can join me later for like the six-ish lecture, okay? It's not going to be at six. I think I'm going to take another 20 or so minutes to get there. So it'll be like 6.15-ish. We'll start the next lecture, okay? So anyway, welcome everyone. Those of you who are new, like Sarah E, welcome. I mean, Chris, I don't know if you're new, but welcome. Atif G, welcome, dear Atif. And all the familiar faces, the usual suspects are here too. Shane, haven't seen you in a while. Good to have you. Okay, I'm just going to chant and then let's do some Hatha Yoga. All right. Good, Chris, welcome. Om... Jayanti Mangala Kali, Bhadra Kali Kapalini, Durgakshama Shivadhatri, Swaha Swadha Namostute, Om Shanti Shanti Shanti. Om, one more point. Feel the way that mantra vibrates within you. It doesn't matter whether or not you know what it means. Most people chanting mantras do not even know. Indians, they don't even know what their mantras mean. It doesn't matter what the mantra means, okay? So I'm going to chant that twice more. Just feel the onomatopoeia of it. Feel its vibration within you. And if you know it, you can chant it. And then I'm going to do the Kali Gayatri Mantra. So feel that within you as well. Om Jayanti Mangala Kali Bhadra Kali Kapalini Durgakshama Shivadhatri Swaha Swadha Namostute Om 
ಜಯಂತಿ ಮಂಗಲ ಕಾಳಿ ಭದ್ರಕಾಳಿ ಕಪಾಳಿನಿ ದುರ್ಗಾಕ್ಷಮಾ ಶಿವಾಧಾತ್ರಿ ಸ್ವಾಹ ಸ್ವಧ ನಮೋಸ್ತು ಕಾಲಕೇ ವಿಮಹೆ ಸ್ಮಶಾನವಾಸಿನ್ಯೇ ಧೀಮಹಿ ತನ್ನೋ ಘೋರೇ ಪ್ರಚೋದಯಾತ್ ತನ್ನೋ ಘೋರೇ ಪ್ರಚೋದಯಾತ್ ಶಾಂತಿ 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 ಓಂ ದಿಸ್ ಇಸ್ ಅ ವರ್ಲ್ಡ್ ಆಫ್ ಮ್ಯಾಜಿಕ್ ಮ್ಯಾಜಿಕ್ ಕಾಂಜರ್ಡ್ ಅಪ್ ಬೈ ವರ್ಡ್ and mother is the power behind all words i salute that shakti who embodies herself as mantra i salute mantra which embodies itself as this manifest world by conquering mantra verily does one conquer the world for the world is not but mantra and mother is not but the power behind all mantras om may this be an offering to her om peace 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 <laughs>